Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Trying to choose the right supplements for the right horses often feels like a chore, and you have enough chores as it is. Fortunately, there's Equithrive, whose mission is to make this whole nutrition equation easier on you and much more beneficial to your horses. Equithrive's lineup of pelleted supplements are developed with care, backed by science, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Not to mention Picky Eater Approved. Whether you need advanced joint care for your equine athlete, gut or metabolic support, Equithrive is your one-stop shop for feed tub fortification. Do your horses and yourself a favor and visit Equithrive.com. Use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF and get 20% off your first order, plus free and fast shipping nationwide. Don't forget to use HUMBLEHOOF, all one word, to get 20% off your first order at Equithrive.com. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. Over the years, I've learned a lot from watching webinars from Dr. Martina Neidhart, who is a veterinarian based out of Europe, who has done a lot of study into biomechanics and rehab for soft tissue injuries. She has done webinars with Yogi Sharp, Wendy Murdoch, and others, and I've just been so fascinated by her approach. In fact, she and I got together and she helped me write up a hand-walking rehab plan for horses recovering from hoof issues and soft tissue injury, which is a lot of the horses that I come across. She agreed to talk with me about the pros and cons of box rest or stall rest for horses that are recovering from lameness. All right, so why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your journey into veterinary medicine? My journey into veterinary medicine, that starts very early. I was, I think, five or six years old when we found a hedgehog in our garden and he had a very serious injury. So we went with him to the vet and uh, the vet was not very impressed. We bought him a hedgehog and just said, put it down and said, oh, why did you bring it in? It's going to die anyway. And I can remember I got so angry as a kid because I thought, you need to help that animal. So I told my mom, I'm going to be a vet one day and I'm going to help animals. And that's how I decided to be a vet. And somehow I managed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> did you end up focusing on large animal or equine because of anything specifically? Did you ride growing up? Uh, yes, I was riding growing up and I, we, my uncle had a farm, so I grew up around farm animals 
Um, we grew up very rural, so I, I was always around animals, and we always had um, dogs and cats and and rabbits and and cows and and all all the farm animals you can imagine. So I was always around animals and and hands on, and and so that was like really nice. And you just start to fall in love with them. You can't, you can't be not in love with animals. I think they yeah. give so much. And and when you grow up so rural, there was not a lot of entertainment otherwise, or I was not really into discos and stuff like that. So I, I like to go, uh, you know, I was I was with my friends from the riding club. And if, if you were looking for me, no matter if it was like when I was like 12 years old or if I was 19, you would find me in the stables. <laughs> That's usually when my parents would call when they were looking for me or even my friends, they would first call in the stables before they would call my parents to find me because yeah. that was before the time of the mobile phones. So <laughs> you had to call some some landlines to find someone if you were looking for them. <laughs> right. Awesome. And then, you know, so a few years ago, obviously, we were kind of in the middle of COVID and there were a lot of uh, webinars when we couldn't meet in person for continuing education. Yeah. And I saw you do one and you talked about stall rest and its effect on the horse. And, yes. um, you know, that's something that's really interesting to me because I like here I keep horses out 24 seven and I try to kind of minimize their time in a stall. And I know that's not what everybody does. But um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some instances where a vet may prescribe stall rest. I think the, the most obvious one is fractures. So if you have fractures... Um, you you need rest um, because like especially for horses if if we have certain fractures in horses if they do not rest if they do move too much that's the only one where I really think yes um, that's when when we have to immobilize parts of the body to be able to heal because movement that's the only instance where movement is actually preventing healing mm -hmm. certain fractures like peel bone fractures depending on what you have it might be enough to immobilize the foot um, what we started to do in the last few years was using a wooden clock and then casting material so when but you let cure it like in the air so you have kind of like a very strong bond and what the clock does it um, reduces the shear forces so that is kind of like a good thing and then those horses can still be out in the paddock and move a little bit but you restrict the movement of the foot but I wouldn't let or wouldn't want them to be running around and jumping around but for um, type 6 fractures where you have like rim fractures because they had like two thin soles for too long or something like that that's a really neat uh, thing and they're still able to move, so you get your hemodynamics going, but you immobilize that part and the shear forces acting on it. So they heal quite well and within eight weeks. So two wow. shoeing periods with a cast, you have very nice sole growth. You have often uh, changes in angles and you have enough stability and healing. Wow. So uh, that works really, really well. Yeah. And actually that makes me think of, so there was a mare that I worked on a few years ago that um, she had foundered in the past. And so when she came up severely lame, uh, she had had so many, so much vet work, like over the 
the mm-hmm. few years that I saw her, that when she came up very lame, we honestly assumed that she had refoundered or um, had an abscess and she was uncomfortable. I went out and um, I put, you know, kind of more rigid glue on on her and, mm-hmm. you know, didn't we told the vet what was going on, but they said, yeah, you know, maybe she's, you know, having you know a limited episode. Didn't really think much of it. You know, came back. Uh, we had her in gluons for a bit. She transitioned out, did great. She came up sound event. Like, I think, honestly, within, yeah, like you said, a few cycles. I mean, she was comfortable mm-hmm. again within maybe two to three months. And down the road, when she was doing much better, we decided to take radiographs again to see kind of where everything was in the foot that now that she was sound. And she had, I mean, her P3 was in two pieces. It was, it was crazy that, I mean, we assume yeah. that when she had been that lame, it was because th- that was when the fracture happened, but we didn't think to radiograph because we just treated it as if she was foundering again, um, which is not, I don't recommend, I think everybody should do radiographs. <laughs> That's not, you know, my purpose of mentioning that, but just that, yeah, yeah. you know, um, we kind of knew the protocol and, and it's crazy to me that, you know, she did so well and came up sound, even though we didn't, you know, I mean, she was just out in her gluons and, um, yeah, that was, it's interesting that I thought that I just did it wrong. But now that you mentioned that, that's really interesting that it's not maybe necessarily the, no, the totally wrong because, thing to do. Well, depending on what kind of fracture you have, like if it's not going through the joint, then you do not really immobilize it totally. But you need to stabilize the part that is fractured. So if you use a glue on with a cast, you're actually doing that. Yeah. So I think it's often underestimated how much we can do with just casting the hoof wall. I mean, you you give 30 to 40% stability, especially if you have like wet feet or weak feet or something like that, or, you know, yourself in, in laminitis cases or forward migration of the capsule when you have like impaired connection because between the hoof wall and the bony attachment, that's really when the cast is absolutely critical and helps them. And they get immediately better. And I mean, like really from application and the next few steps, you can see how the pain is going away. And I think this is so nice. Yeah, absolutely. Because like pain has a massive, massive influence in how the body's healing. Like this is, is so important. We need to control pain. And if, if you have pain under control, and that means, you know, like, you ask about box rest for um, rehab. So the most important thing is to restrict movement in certain areas. So and that depends what you, how you can do it. Um, like I said, for certain fractures. So if I if I have like a like a P two fracture, sorry, they need a cast and they need to stay in, yeah. and perhaps they can do five minutes hand walk in the cast because usually they feel much better when they have a cast on and it's stabilized or you you put a screw through and you stabilize it and have the cast in addition they still can do five minutes hand walk and hand grace but you have to restrict movement there shouldn't be like a jump or they they shouldn't be able to turn quickly or something like that because that's that's what's deciding in the next eight weeks how they're going to heal and if they're going to survive or not right um so, like fractures is really something where I say, yes, uh, we need to stabilize that. And yes, we're going to weaken the whole system because they're inside. But 
box rest isn't box rest, you know, like it doesn't mean you just close everything in and you have them in a four by four meter stable and that's it. Um, you can do a lot for enrichment of that area. So you can have different positions where they're eating. You can use balance paths. That's usually something you can always use, but it gives proprioceptive input. It trains their core muscles and stuff like that. You can use cookie stretches and all those things. It's it's intensive. Um, you can have like branches in where they can chew and where they can pull and stuff like that. Um, they need to be entertained. They need to move a little bit but just not acting on the area that is affected. Same goes for colic horses. If you have horses after a colic operation, the first two weeks or 10 days where they still have the stitches in, depending on how well they're healing, that's usually 10 days to two weeks. Um, that's when, when they have to be on box rest. But in two weeks, nothing is really going to destroy as long as they can still be hand-walked five minutes, two, three times a day and go for grazing or something like that. That's what you usually do. And then while they're in the box, you can do certain exercises. You can do wither wiggles. You can do um, like rocking motion. You can put them on balance pads. Like box rest doesn't mean you just put them in a corner and forget about them for yeah. two or three weeks. That would be wrong. Right. Um, but sometimes when you have a weak structure, it just needs time for healing. And then you gradually go on. Usually two weeks is also, you know, when you have an um, active tendon injury, when you have a semi-ruptured tendon or one that had to be stitched up and you put it in a cast afterwards. But after that, after those initial two weeks where you have the acute inflammatory stage, the moment you go into a healing stage, that's when you start to introduce movement gradually. But they need to have cyclic loading without overloading the structure that's healing. But right. you need loading patterns while they're healing to get everything aligned with the forces and to heal without having massive scars. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, like, sorry, I'm jumping between topics. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. Because I was going to ask about that, too. And, and honestly, I mean, that probably, um, you know, talking to Dr. Van Epps at New Bolton and him, like his emphasis on the cyclic loading, too. I mean, his big thing is also just preventing like supporting lim limb laminitis. Yeah. Um, so that is, you know, another thing that I think of, too, when we're like, what do we do when these horses are injured and can't move? You know, how do we make sure that we're preventing other issues from arising? Having a hoof rehab facility, one main focus of ours is forage. I want the horses here to have safe, tested forage available 24-7 without the risk of becoming obese. I've spent years looking for the ideal slow feeder for us, and we have found it with Hay Boss feeders. When I tell you that my Hay Boss XL feeder has cut my feeding time by 90%, I mean it, and it might even be an understatement. The covered feeders with integrated slow feed nets allow for all my horses here to have access to hay all the time, which is healthy for their guts and minds. They're also not able to completely binge all at once because the nets keep them in check. They're available all over North America right now, but side note, if you're in New England, I got mine from Mountain Lane Farm, who delivered it right to me and showed us how to set it up and use it. We can't imagine our lives without it here.
So, yeah. And actually on that same note, um, and you already started talking a little bit about this, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, maybe some of the cons of putting a horse on stall rest? Um, what, like, you know, we talked a little bit about where it's a good thing and, and when it might be really oh, useful. Anything, anything that is standing and not moving, um, is impairing the function of everything. Horses are animals made for movement. In nature, they move 18 to 20 hours a day. They're not made for standing still. And often we have them standing in certain um, keeping systems. They stand there for 23 hours in a box, not moving. This is not good for joints. This is not good for tendons. Um, This is reducing, you know, that best uh, the blood flow and hemodynamics in the hoof yeah, and the heart rate and the p- blood pressure is directly linked to how good the hoof functions. That's why we have those anastomosis in the feet. Um, the blood is very, the body is very, very clever in the horse. Like, because like, if you think about how much pressure it would actually need to go through those little blood vessels that we have in a digital cushion and in the hoof itself, that would actually kill a horse or the heart of a horse when it would be full racing gallop. That wouldn't work because it just, the pressure would be too big for the heart. That's why we have those little anastomosis and why the foot has its own pumping function when it moves. And this is how you get the best um, hemodynamics in the hoof. It needs to move. And it has also a feedback onto the big circulation in the body. We often forget that. So movement is critical. And it's not just for joints. You know, there is research on joint surfaces. If they do not go through a full range of motion and just stand there, the chondrocytes after 48 hours start to die. If you keep them in one spot, um, so that's why casting also has like negative effects, and we do not want to cast joints for too long if it's not really necessary for them to thrive. But the same goes when you're standing around; it's the same, and that's also why foot balance is so important. Because if you look at, for example, the fetlock joint, if you look at that, you have in the middle when the where the bony column is aligned, you have each joint surface in the middle is the thickest. And this is where we have cartilage that is made for concussion. So this is the one who can take the pounding. And then on the side, it gets much thinner in the joint. This is actually um, cartilage that's made for movement and for flexibility and for gliding. So if we have always a broken back hoof past an axis, mm-hmm. we are loading the wrong parts of the, the joint that's not made to dampen concussion, but for flexibility and movement. And this that's why these parts of the joints then start to deter even more. So if you have them standing around in poor foot balance, this can be detrimental to the joints long term. And it also, you know, like same goes for ligaments, tendons, muscles, like they need muscles. We can go get back in six to eight weeks. This is how quick muscle recovers. Tendon and ligaments take much longer. They, They take double the amount of time to recover if they have been standing um, long and not moving. 
because they just don't have the blood flow that the muscle has. So everything in tendons and ligaments happens with um, the nutrients just go through tissue through to them and not via blood vessels. That's why it takes longer. And that's why movement is so important for them because we need the blood flow that then in the second part gets the nutrients to the tendons and ligaments through the body fluids that are in the um, between the cells for the nutrients of those uh, tissues. That's why they are dependent on movement. And if you look at the legs of the horse, there is not a lot of muscle and, and, and blood vessels. There is mainly like connective tissue. If we dissect legs, we often just cut it away and think it's not important. But all the fascia that we cut away has a massive, massive um, importance for, for the legs. They're there so the horses can rotate their legs, even if they do not have official muscles to be able to help them with supination and pronation. But if you look, watch them in slow motion, you can clearly see horses can rotate their legs. Yeah. And and this is a connective tissue. And connective tissue is dependent on movement. And so when it comes to like, you, you know, we've talked a little bit about the soft tissue. And that's something where I see a lot of people, you know, recommending stall rest for extended periods of time. And no. I know that, you know, with with my horse, he does have adhesions. Um, mm-hmm. to his collateral ligaments. And I've always wondered, you know, should I have tried to get him to move more after, um, you know, this initially happened? Or, you know, what are some of the things that can happen if soft tissue is injured and then isn't given the ability to move? You develop adhesions. And this is what happens. You, yeah. have scar, you have scar tissue development. Or scar tissue develops all the time. But if it develops on the movement, it develops functional scar tissue so it allows the movement plane to function what they trained we had a really neat case uh, from a horse that got trapped in quicksand and finally pulled itself out and it ruptured several muscles in shoulder pectorals um hind ends uh like like really important one but the owner let him be out in the field and move around. So if you look at the horse moving around in a straight line at the walk, it was absolutely sad. Wow. The moment he had to go onto a bend or onto his or, or go into a trot, he was three out of five lane. <laughs> yeah. So what it was the movement the animal had while healing made it functional. Yeah. And for the other part, it developed adhesions. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So a horse that has a soft tissue injury um, and you and you hope that they, you know, you want them to go back to work. um, What might that look like in terms of their rehab if we want to have them heal functionally? So most important is ideally I'm always talking about ideally. I know sometimes it's not possible because there's like restrictions or or these things are not available. But ideally for a soft tissue injury, you would have an ultrasound and you know what you're dealing with injury wise. Because it's a difference if you're dealing with a superficial tendon injury or a deep flexor tendon injury. Mm -hmm. Also where the injury is. 
like if you look at the suspensory ligament, it's different if you have a problem in the branch or if you have a problem at the origin. Because those structures um, act differently. So you want to know which movement can my horse do without overloading those structures. And this is how you tailor the rehab program. And, and you know that yourself, um, foot balance is a big, big topic when you rehab soft tissue injuries. Right. Because often we have underlying foot balance problems leading long term to those micro traumas or those repetitive micro traumas that finally lead to the injuries we're going to see. Yeah, because most of the tissue injury, if it's not from an acute trauma, that means like hit something or fell into something or got a kick, um, then it is due to repetitive repetitive micro trauma. And why do we have repetitive micro trauma? This is an imbalance. Be it like you have tritons in the lower cervicals, and they're always your flexor and extensors in the foot are a little bit um, untimed, you know, like one is is contracting earlier than the other is relaxing. This will also give you a repetitive microtrome, even if if you have perfect foot balance. But it will influence on the wear and tear on your tendons, especially if you start to work those horses and they go and work on their speed and then you you mean well and put some neoprene wrap that heats even more up tendons and prevents them from cooling down. And especially tendons can get very, very hot core temperatures. And I mean very hot. It's it's normal that you can find 51, 52 degrees in tendons if they're worked at speed and with a wrap. Is that Celsius? Yes. Yeah. Um, anything over 50 starts to kill tendon cells or 48. Um, So cyclic loading in combination with prevention of radiation um, is enough to cause core lesions. If you then have, in addition, poor foot balance, that's putting more stress on those um, structures or you have a horse that's cross-firing and hitting himself, and even without causing a, a proper injury, you have a hematoma, this will weaken the structure, and then you either get with those who are hitting themselves, even if it's like two, three days after they have been hitting, they get the injury, it's due to the hematoma and the speed again. So it's it's a lot of things that come together, like too much movement is detrimental for healing, also the surroundings. So it's like we we do not immobilize the whole animal, but ideally we immobilize certain structures or support certain structures so they have less stress. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And And talking about like foot balance and things like that, I mean, that's something I've always said is that there's, you know, when we have issues that are 
happening in the foot, a horse becomes lame and it seems like they become acutely lame in my head. It's probably like a buildup of those repetitive strain type injuries that finally get to a point where the horse can't compensate anymore. Um, And that's what I, yeah. If you think about a tendon, you know, that's, that's a lot of many tiny little strings. And if, if anybody who has played guitar, the guitar strings are also made together of, of a lot of tiny little strings and there will come a moment where just like too many of them are loose and then the whole thing falls apart. And this is the same what happens with tendons. Your your all the little the little filaments that you have inside the tendons. If you have one or two, we lose two, three every time we do a movement, but the body heals it. And if there's not too many of them, because the body constantly falls apart and heals itself. But if the if the cycle of falling apart moves faster than the one repairing, that's when we get into trouble. Right. And this can be due to wrong loading. This can be to not enough nutrients. So if your hemodynamics are not correct in the feet, um, then we're getting into a problem as the blood flow is not good enough. That's why a lot of horses with poor foot balance do not just get central sulcus rush or hoof cracks. They also can have uh, problems like um, mud fever. Yeah. And it's really hard to control and you get the foot balance right. And, oh, miraculously, they don't get mud fever anymore. <laughs> right. It's just the blood flow is better. So the immune system can work better and everything is like healing better. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's often underestimated. And and what what is good foot balance? For every horse, it's a little bit different because none of us is born with perfect legs same goes for the horses but for me I don't know how it is for you for me especially with horses who have problems with their feet it seems to be best for them when they can land to the eye and I don't mean to to a slow motion video just to the eye relative flat I don't have like loading of one side or the other or of the toe or the extremely the heel more like they look like they're relatively flat landing so we have an equal pressure and the landing and loading is more or less equal so the structures get all loaded equally yeah and and to me that that helped the most when we have been dealing um with with problem horses and you know like it doesn't matter if it's a suspensory if it's a high suspensory or if it's the attachment of the deep flexor or or if it's one of the collateral ligaments like if you can get the loading equalized then it's healing during movement but you reduce stress yeah yeah that's something i look for in all of my rehab cases is watching them walk and also just you know, like you're talking about like to the naked eye. And I know that there's been so many studies where there's all these nuances about landing and I've followed all those. I've, I've looked at all the research and for whatever reason, I see horses, I see a strong correlation like you do of horses that as they're landing more balanced, then they seem sounder or vice versa. As they get more sound, they're landing more balanced. And 
So I know that there's, you know, I don't want, <laughs> I feel like some researchers are gonna be like, oh, well, it says on these like tech scan plates that they actually land this way. And I'm sure that there's mm-hmm. all those nuances. But when I'm just watching the horse, like you're saying, um, that's something that I look for and and notice, uh, like, you know, even over just the last 10 years that I've been doing this is that that's a consistent thing that I see is as they're landing more balanced, like mediolaterally landing more balanced, um, like DP wise, that they get more sound. So yeah. 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 And, and I know, like, the, if you look at how the, the fascia lines go, that, that we, we have a slight lateral heel, medial heel come down first. But, like, it, we need slow-mo videos to see that. If, if it's to our naked eye, it's landing flat. That is good enough because, like, we see, I think, about 15 to 20 pictures a second, while slow-mo is up to 50. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we see way less than what actually happens. And I think if we can get it right to the naked eye, that's already a big improvement for most of the horses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds horrible, but... No, I mean, yeah. that's also, that's what I look for, too. And I know it's not, like, super, you know peer-reviewed study scientific but I see that correlation too for sure yeah Yeah. because I think it's like we often underestimate and there is not so much research out now it's coming more and more um looking at what influence foot balance has on the upper body um I know a few years ago people were still denying that it even has anything influence to anything higher up than the fetlock Nowadays, we know there is like way more connections and everything is actually connected depending on um, because how all the forces go through the body. And yes, it's perhaps not, how do I say that, validated with pressure points or pressure plates, but how how would we want to do that? Because everybody's different because all of the horses do have a different anatomy. Right. How many horses do you know who have straight legs? <laughs> None. <laughs> how can we how can we validate that? That is something that I always think, yes, we can perhaps measure the landing patterns on pressure plates. But anything that's let's say higher up than the carpus, how do we do we measure that? We can measure myofascial tension. That's something we can. And but that changes also how the horse is landing. Um, if they have tight chest muscles, if they have a problem in the lower neck, this will change the measurements of the myofascial tension in the shoulder, for example. And that's totally away from the foot. Right. So I think this is a very, very complex problem, and I do not know how they want to solve that for the people who really need everything validated with measurements because you need to look at the whole body and that's I think that's so important for rehab yeah it's not just the box rest it's also how is everything working together what compensation patterns have those horses developed because I think this is a a big problem that often gets underestimated and it's also making the job very difficult for many of the farriers, I think, and, and hoof care providers. Because if a horse is in a compensation pattern, 
they develop a certain kind of movement to prevent loading certain certain areas. But they overload others. Right. And they also give you a false picture of how they actually should load their leg in a healthy way. And this is why manual therapy and rehab is so important because it's the same when when you had a shoulder injury and you're having bad shoulder immobilized for a certain amount of time you will start to use your body differently you will get a twist in your thorax you will start to load your lower leg differently and even you can use that shoulder again your movement patterns are stored in your spine these are our reflexes and the same goes for the horses. So if a horse has learned to move in a compensation pattern and it takes about 10,000 steps to learn a movement. So if they have been moving around for a while and they learned this is the most comfortable for me to move, mm-hmm. even if the pain's no longer there and the tissue has healed, they will no longer load it properly if we do not tell them to load it correctly again. Yeah. Because their body already went into compensation. And this is why it's so difficult. And sometimes if you remove those compensations, your landing pattern can change dramatically. Right. Yeah. And honestly, something I think about all the time is if these injuries like soft tissue injuries are more of a repetitive strain type injury of a buildup over time, then just, you know, telling them, okay, we're going to stand still and rest. And then, you know, once it's healed, we'll go back out and start working again. What have we done to then change those, whatever was causing those repetitive strain type injuries? We didn't change anything. So how would we prevent it from happening again unless we start at the source of where it was coming from, if that makes sense? Yes. And that's why why I like to know where the injury is to make a rehab plan. This is so important. So you can start, like when you have them, unbox rest because they need it. Let's say we have an acute tendon injuries that requires the first two weeks box rest when it's still acute. Um, but while they are on box rest, you can A, find out why did that happen? Was it an acute trauma? Like you have a cross-country horse, it ran into a fence and got hit by one of the wooden poles. Possible. So these usually heal very well and never look back. Or have you been trotting your horse out in the field or working it out in the sand arena? And after the training, the horse starts limping. Then this is usually due to a repetitive strain. If they do not hit themselves, but just walking through deep sand or like out in the arena or just while they were trotting over the field and there was a little hole and because we know ourselves we don't rupture our ligaments if it's not a massive massive misstep Mm -hmm. if it's just like trotting on an uneven ground and you get a tendon injury or ligament injury there is an underlying problem and then finding out where that underlying problem is is it foot balance is it tack that's influencing how the horse is moving is it a teeth problem do we have arthritis or pathology somewhere higher up in the back in in the body 
Like these are all things that influence how we have to rehab that because you have to take that into account so it doesn't happen what you said. They're fine while they're on box rest. We start moving then again. And if we do that, then they fall apart again. Sometimes we have metabolic issues. A lot of horses do have PSSM Mm -hmm. or they have Cushing's or we have insulin resistance. And so our connective tissue is weak. All these things need to be taken into account. And then those two-week box rests are perfect because you can think about what can I do and how can I build them up? And while they're there and they start their working program afterwards, where you slowly introduce movement again, because nothing that doesn't have a fracture should stand longer than two weeks. Yeah. And then you introduce movement again, and you have to make sure they start correct movement. And even while they're in the box, you can put them on surefoot pads. Check how is their chest muscle movement? How do they have a sway? How do they prefer to stand on those pads? Um, If you do like rocking motions for the withers or from the SI joint to activate the core muscles, do they activate them equally? Do they have one side that's easier for them than the other? And these are things that gives you clue where might be the underlying issue. Because usually where pathology shows up in the body, if it's not from active acute trauma, it is secondary to overloading from somewhere else. And to find the underlying issue where why they are overloading that certain structure, this is really critical. Because I've seen now several horses in the last few weeks who had stifle problems. If you do an ultrasound and if you do x-rays, you see absolutely nothing, but they block to the stifle. And most of them were medially high, overloading the collateral ligament of the stifle because of that and the lateral, lateral um, meniscus. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so crazy to think how much, you know, we, I mean, I'm, I'm a healthcare provider, right? So how much like healthcare providers really can influence the rest of the body, but also, you know, there's just so much, I mean, there's so much learning that I feel like we'll never know <laughs> everything. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's like not just the healthcare provider, you also see, I think you're also the first ones who see when something's wrong and something starts changing. Because you see them way more often than we vets do. You see them so many times. You see them often every four to six weeks. Vets never see horses that much. And you can see, do landing and loading patterns change? Right. And you see that. You see, is the shoe wear changing? You see that on composites as as much as you see that on on metal shoes. And and you, you feel... Oh, is the horse is not as supple as it used to be when I'm under it? Mm-hmm. All those information you get, you get so many information additional to what the vet gets. And you get them at an early stage when the when just, you know, it might be a discomfort stage. It's not pathology. It's just a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit stiff. Loading patterns change. And often then you can help with manual therapy or something very easy. Um, like correction with feet or or they have a tight back, perhaps back when, when horses are growing, five, six years old, back, hip, everything's developing. If you work them too hard, you might get stifle problems. And inst- you see that developing immediately. So you can give so much 
important feedback to the owner. Hey, I think there is something changing that helps preventing injuries. And this is the same when you have them for rehab. You see the patterns change. And if the patterns don't change, then, you know, there is an underlying issue that we need to look for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that we're kind of, you know, coming up on the the 45 minute mark. So I didn't know if, um, you know, if we want to wrap up and you want to say if, if you have any advice that you have for owners that either are, you know, their horse is recommended to be on stall rest or if their horse is on stall rest, what, what advice do you have for them to have a successful rehab? If it is for a fracture, it needs a time, time to heal. If it is for colic surgery, you have the initial stage till the stitches are out and then you have to start very slow movement program. Controlled movement for most of soft tissue injuries is the best for healing. Um, and no matter what injury it is, speak to your vet what control movement program would be appropriate because every animal is unique. Um, but like for colic surgeries, one of the most important parts is the eight-week point. Horses will not be able to canter or hop around before eight weeks because that's the minimal time that the linea alba needs to heal. Like even if the skin and everything is healed, but because we are cutting through um, connective tissue, so it doesn't bleed that much, um, this needs more time for healing than anything else. Sometimes it's 12 weeks. Sometimes it's recommended to do an ultrasound to see, is it healed properly on the inside? So we can start to put more strain on because there's nothing worse than when you get uh, an abdominal hernia after an ultras um, after a colic surgery, just because you didn't wait long enough or you didn't follow a movement program with enough caution. Right. Um, tendon injuries, it's the same. Usually it helps when you're not sure. Depends what your budget is. Movement is always good. Let them move. Um, total box rest for tendon injuries is proven to be wrong. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just keeping them inside. If they are on a budget and you want to give them the best chance, sometimes it's the best to put them out in the field, leave them out 24-7 and don't give them painkillers. It sounds horrible, but they then don't overdo it. Yeah. But make sure they have a good foot balance and have all the care they need otherwise. Right. And then do follow-ups. If you can have a more intense rehab, look for, um, ask your vet to get a plan for rehab. So usually that's like firsthand walking at a walk and then, or if it's the horse is a little bit difficult, you can get slight sedation with ACE or something similar. So they are controlled because it's always controlled movement. Don't let them overdo and use something that they shouldn't because that's going to set you back. Right. And sometimes you see that when they have, when they're out 24 seven, they feel too well and they can overdo it again. And it sets you back another three months. Unfortunately, that's the, that's the downside of when they're out constantly or the ground is slippy and they slip while they play. And um, I mean, being outside has its pros and cons, but it, uh, 
controlled movement is usually the best for healing, no matter what injury. Right. And just change the controlled movement with the healing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This is honestly one of my favorite conversations we had because I feel like there was just so much that I learned, but also so much that I felt like I've seen too. So it's kind of validating to hear um, similar things from somebody who has more experience than I do. Um, But yeah, I I appreciate it so much that you're able to chat with me today. And thank you. You're very welcome. It's an honor to be on your podcast, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is so great. I learned so much and I'm sure everybody else will too. Yeah. And honestly, I would love to even maybe do another one again sometime of of another topic that um, we could chat about in terms of hoof health or rehab. Yeah. And I think you did a few years ago when we talked about rehab together, you did that little, what is it? Oh, the guide. That picture. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. little guide. That is a really good guide. It's rough. It's like, it's not like tailored to any horse, but it gives you an idea of what you can do and how you can go forward with movement for rehab of soft tissue injuries. I think that was a really good thing that you made. I mean, thank you so much for your help on that because I've sent that to so many people and they've had really good success of getting their horse stronger and and back to ridden work just from following that. Yeah, I think what often gets underestimated in, in rehab still is like core muscle exercises. I can't emphasize that high enough core muscle exercises even if it's like if you use belly bands if you use you know like cookie stretches if you use short foot pads if you use like wither wiggles or if you use like balancing um, movements anything that helps to strengthen the core muscle without them overdoing it um, is absolutely brilliant. Pull work and hill work comes much later when they're already stronger. Right. Um, but all those things are really, really critical and are often underestimated. And core muscles take more time to develop than um, than the big ones. And we often don't see when they are developed. That's the biggest problem. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, that might be a good discussion for another time, too, for another episode. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much. Thank you. Have a lovely time. Yeah, thank you. And have a great rest of your afternoon, I guess, there. (laughs) You too. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.